This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book at our meeting, and we are still considering the finished work. We have been specially considering the teaching of the epistle to the Hebrews because the word finished is the word perfected and the one great key thought of Hebrews is this question of perfecting. You have in front of you the outline of this epistle and I'm asking your attention to the central section at this moment. You will see that in the middle of this epistle there's a negative element. And now, a mere negation, a mere negative, cannot go very far. But we do remember that the scripture, which is given by inspiration of God, is not only uh, uh, profitable for positive doctrine, but for correction. We not only remember the Apostle Paul says, not only teaching, but warning every man and teaching. Now, we sometimes see uh, demolition going on. Buildings coming down, a heap of rubble. But you see, the demolition isn't because people want to pull things down. It's because they want to build things up. It's no good moaning about the slums and wanting better houses, but objecting to pulling them down. So there is a place in our teaching of others and our understanding of the Scriptures for the negation, things which are not, as well as things which are. But I suppose we should be right in saying that only a small percentage of our witness should be negative and a great amount of it positive. But here we have the example of an inspired writer putting right in the middle, as you notice, no perfection in the priesthood, no perfection in the law, no perfection in the ordinances, and no perfection in the sacrifices. What a sweep. Well, say, what have we got left? Well, look inside of it, the positive. We've got this man. And while we've got this man, and what that man stands for, we can look upon the sacrifices of the priesthood and the law as wonderful types and shadow. But if we trust in type and shadow, and bypass him that makes them live, we're living like the poor Israelites did. It never touched the conscience. It never meets the heart's need. They were valuable because they pointed on to him. And when he opened the scriptures, he did not hesitate to go through them, law, prophets and psalms, concerning himself. For unless Christ is seen to be the beginning and the ending, and all that goes between those two, we have somehow missed the purpose of God in giving us this book. Well now let's notice the way in which this is introduced. In chapter 7, he says, he's speaking about Melchizedek. Now if we turn to the Old Testament and deal with that, our time will be up. But you know enough about Melchizedek to know that he steps into the scriptures, speaks, he's only once more mentioned as far as I remember in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and that's all we know about him. But the argument that the Apostle brings forward here is that he was made like unto the Son of God. 
You notice in chapter 7, verse 3, he was without father, without mother. Now, it doesn't mean to say he was never born, but he had no genealogy. Every priest had to prove his genealogy. And there were some who came back under Nehemiah and Ezra, who were set aside and couldn't take up the priestly office till a priest stood up with Urim and Thummim to supply the fact that they hadn't got their birth certificates and couldn't prove it. Melchizedek steps in without father or mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was. And he says, Abraham, your honoured father in the faith, paid tithes to this man. Your father Abraham was blessed by this man. So he was greater than Abraham. But when we come a bit further down in this chapter 7, we pass from Melchizedek to Christ, and we have in verse 24 of the same chapter, but this man, you see, we're back again, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable or an intransmissible priesthood. So here you see, he's touching upon the great priesthood of Christ, which is dominant in this epistle to the Hebrews. This man. Now to see the rounding off of this, will you turn to chapter 10, verse 12. And again he's speaking about the priests, verse 11. And every priest, standing, daily, ministering and offering, oftentimes, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So you see, it, it's absolutely sure, isn't it, that that is what the Apostle was out to do. He says, I'm only pulling down in order to remove all obstruction between you and the marvellous work of the Son of God. He's not taking away and not giving you something better. He says, I'm taking away that you may receive something better. So when you look at chapter um, seven, where he speaks about the law. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. This isn't casting any aspersion on the law of God. It was perfect because it did its work. But if you try to use a machine to do some work that it was never designed for, you have disaster. The law was never given to give true, positive salvation. And one of the reasons we discover presently is that it never touched the conscience. This was external. It was type and shadow. So the law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh to God. And you will see that this law was a covenant. The Ten Commandments, which are a very wonderful moral code, were given to the people of Israel, particularly as something that they and God had agreed together, called the Old Covenant. Chapter 8 of Hebrews, verse 13. In that he said, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. 
It is God who says the old covenant is vanishing away. And I think it says in another place, finding fault. Yes, verse 8 of chapter 8. But finding fault with him, he said. Finding fault with what? He said, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. But finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, said the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it tells you, one of the external evidences of that newness and, and superiority, he says in verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to be a people, not on tables of stone. You go back to the Old Testament, when Moses came down from God to the people, and he said, these are the terms in which you shall enter into a covenant relationship with God, and the people said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And the terms were, if they kept that law, they would be a kingdom of priests. And they sent back the word that they agreed. And before Moses could get back again with the tables of stone, they were worshipping an idol and he smashed the tables of stone to pieces and they had to be renewed and never given to Israel again. <coughs> put in the ark, waiting for the coming of the Son of God. Would you say, why go to all that trouble to give these laws and then find fault with them? Well, there's many another problem with regard to the things of this life which are resolved by the same answer there's a discipline about it will you look at the, the epistle to the Romans two passages there first of all in Romans chapter 7 Romans chapter 7 He says in verse 12, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. So there's a statement saying that so far as the witness that God gave, there's no fault to be found in that. Well, let's further down. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual. So it's on a very high plane. But he says, I am carnal, sold under sin. So he says, instead of this law bringing life to me, it brought death. And it always will. For you mustn't mix law with mercy. The quality of mercy is not strained. And in the course of justice, None of us should see salvation. Even Shakespeare says that. I don't know how far he was a true believer or not. doesn't matter. He says the truth. Don't mix up mercy with justice. If justice be your plea, then an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, 16 ounces to the pound, a pair of scales, is the way which you want to be adjusted by God. Do you want that? Not one of us put in the scale could keep it horizontal. Not one of us. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There is none righteous. And the man who wrote those words could beat us on that plane. 
is it if any man have whereof he, whereof he may boast and trust I more touching the righteousness of the law he said I lived I was blameless and he cast it all on the rubbish that he would be found in Christ not having the righteousness which is of the law but that which is the gift of God by faith in him so the law was a preparation for the gospel. Because we've all got in our makeup that if only we had the chance and the opportunity, we might have managed it. Well, God says, I'm giving you the chance and the opportunity. And I've set aside one nation for centuries or demonstrate that with God, their God, and with his law given to them, look what they did. Look how they rebelled. Look at their disobedience. Look what consequences came. They fulfilled the very prophets by denying them. And where they failed, will you succeed? No, said the scripture. So we have these stresses. Not only have we this um, emphasis, but if you look at the 8th chapter of Romans, there's another reference. Verse 2 and 3. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made thee free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do. Now why couldn't it? Is that it was weak. Why was it weak? Through the flesh. It was strong enough itself. But when the person came to try to obey it, he found he broke it over and over again. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son condemning sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And so we've got this stress. There's one other passage I think I ought to include before our time is up and that is Galatians chapter 3. Here's a passage which has exercised the minds of expositors commentators right down the ages and you've made say to me well we've come to the right place now for this one he's speaking to us he knows the lot oh friends it isn't that it's a matter of just asking your attention Galatians uh, chapter 3 he says in verse 17 and this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ the law which was 430 years after. So a promise had been made 430 years before Mount Sinai. And he says that promise will remain unaltered even though you break all the laws of Sinai. For that promise promised a saviour and that's what you need. It cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Question. Wherefore then serve it the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come. So it's still preparing the way for the true seed, the true Christ, to whom the promises were made. And it was ordained by angels, that's the law of Sinai, in the hand of a mediator. Now comes the verse. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. And all the things that have been written about that, all about the unity of the Godhead and I don't know what. But don't you see what he means? 
Even I can see what it means, I think. That as long as you've got a mediator, there must be two people. You can't mediate with one person, can you? Now, when God made a promise to Abraham, on the very vital occasion, he put Abraham into a deep sleep. And Abraham could promise nothing. (laughs) So the moment you realise that there was a mediation between the people and God, and God says, if you do that, then I will do that, you've got all this element of uncertainty. But there's no such thing as that in our case. We have a mediator, but our mediator does not bring us the obligation to keep the law, or to observe days, or to offer sacrifices, but to put our full unreserved trust in his finished work. Well, it looks to me as though I've got to come to an end, otherwise I shall be breaking faith with you. And uh, if you say, well, we didn't get very far in this dinner time, well, that's a tribute to the word of God because it's full, isn't it? And it needs all the grace that God can give to be able to make it speak at least one message.